Welcome to Infill, where we discuss local San Francisco politics and policy, and sometimes California as well. This week, we've got special guest Liam Dillon from the LA Times, who has done an amazing job reporting on housing in the region and a lot of the stuff that's happening up in Sacramento. Um, Liam, introduce yourself. So, uh, I've been working here at the LA Times based out of Sacramento for the last 18 months, and I cover a number of issues that probably the most prominent uh, has been issues surrounding housing affordability. And so, uh, fortunate that I get to not only write about just the bills as they're coming up, but also get to travel a decent amount to kind of see the implications of what some of these policies might mean on the ground up and down California. Cool. The big news this week has been the housing package, that the sausage making on that has been pretty intense, um, but it's going to include probably SB 35, which we've talked about previously here, SB 2 and SB 3. Can you sort of paint out for us what kind of the main components of each of those bills are and what you think is going to happen maybe tomorrow? Right. So the strategy has been here uh, really over the last uh, year or so. It's been a combination of, of things to try to deal with the housing problem on, on the one hand. And it, and it agrees, aligns in a broad sense with what sort of most experts believe you need to do, which is A, you're not going to solve, uh, not going to solve the problem uh, without spending more money to subsidize uh, low-income housing across the state uh, because the market's not going to take care of everybody and not going to be able to do that. And at the same time, uh, you need to make it easier to build in general because you can't throw enough money to fix the problem, right? And so this, these sort of three key pieces of the housing package address both of those concerns. Uh, you have Senate Bill 2, which is a $75 fee for most real estate transactions. Uh, and what that would do is then funnel the money roughly somewhere between um, – somewhere between uh, uh, 200 million and 250 million a year to help build and finance uh, low-income developments primarily. Then you have Senate Bill 3, which is a bond measure that is aiming for the 2018 ballot uh, statewide. Uh, that now is $4 billion. $3 billion of that would go towards um, financing low-income developments. An extra billion would, would go towards uh, home loans for veterans. And then the final part of the package is uh, sort of the final part of the main bills in the package. Uh, is Senate Bill 35, uh, uh, which uh, aims to reduce um, some local uh, local restrictions or local regulation on home building in general, provided a number of conditions are met related to um, uh, reserving certain portions of developments for low-income folks and paying union-level wages for construction workers and things like that. And, and basically will speed up the whole process, hopefully, by reducing the number of places where nasty neighbors can say, I don't like it. Uh, that's what I'm excited about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, you know, yeah, uh, nasty neighbors is going to be your language, right. not mine. Uh, but what, what, uh, what the bill aims to do is says, look, you know, if you're if you're I'm a developer and I propose 100 units on a project, uh, 100 units on a piece of land that's zoned for 100 units, that's it. Like, there's no extra like process that's involved after that point. Um, and, you know, again, provided that certain you know wage standards are met, provided that certain um, uh, uh, affordability standards are met for part of that project, and so that's the that's the role of that or the goal of that bill. And what's really interesting, um, you know, I spent a lot of time working on a project early this year that published about the state's uh, you know home building goals that are laid out every eight years, and it's sort of a kind of a mess in terms of the lack of accountability that local governments uh, have for um, uh, you know getting you know meeting those numbers, right? Um, those home building goals, and what this would do. Senate Bill 35 would, for the first time, tie a sort of incentive structure um, to that process, whereby if, if enough homes were being built at a certain affordability level in a particular city or county, then this sped up process wouldn't uh, wouldn't take effect because they'd sort of be deemed to have um, you know have, have, have you know deemed to have been doing their fair share on housing, and so again, this only applies in cities where. Um, uh, uh, not enough housing is being built along the lines of what their goals are. Yeah, and I can add more color. This is going to only apply in the most recalcitrant municipalities who have consistently said and shirked their regional housing goals and just not built the housing that they need to be building. But you didn't say it that colorfully. <laughs> <laughs> I did not. I um, so can you talk also like the politics around this have been really fascinating to watch, you know, sort of this 
in San Francisco, we don't have Republicans, so I'm always intrigued about like the role that the Republicans play in the Sacramento uh, and how this coalition, I mean, it seems to be really broad support at this point. So are you talking about uh, SB 35 in particular or the whole package in general? I mean, the whole package has been, I mean, SB 35 has, you know, broader support than I would have thought uh, previously. And then the whole package, you know, I know they needed to get, you know, a lot. I mean, $4 billion in a bond took a lot of uh, arm wrestling. Right, right, right. (laughs) So uh, as I've reported on this, um, there are kind of two major interest groups that are kind of kind of setting the guardrails. Um for what can get done here. And so on the money side, you have the um, California Realtors Association, which is an extremely powerful interest group. And what they've done, you know, I mentioned Senate Bill 2 with this real estate transaction fee. Uh, You know, the original bill for that called for the $75 fee on every single transaction, including uh, including home sales, right? Um, And so that would have raised a significant amount of money um, for low-income development, but the realtors were opposed, and as a result, that version of the legislation never came up for a vote, uh, and so now that the now that home sales and commercial property sales have been taken out of um, the bill, it has a much greater chance of passage. Although it's still kind of um, uh, still a bit um, uncertain at this point. Uh, so, how worried should we be in terms of whether it's going to pass? Yeah, I mean, everybody keeps telling me to not worry, which just makes me anxious. Sure, I mean, look, you know, you you brought up. You know, you brought up Republicans, and they're not going to vote for this. Um, and so, you know, Democrats have a super, have a supermajority in both houses of the legislature. Um, but you're going to need it basically every single one. Well, technically, they can lose one Democrat in the assembly uh, to get this through. And you know, when I spoke with a number of kind of uh, targeted Democrats or more moderate Democrats earlier this week, I talked to at least three who are undecided. And so, it's going to take a lot of arm twisting to kind of get what they need uh, to get this bill through. And Marin especially has been sort of the loudest in opposition to this. I mean, can you talk about the role of, you know, places that are kind of the worst actors and and how they're kind of engaging with this process? Well, at the end of the day, I'm not sure that if representatives from Marin are going to be the ones that are uh, going to say no to this. You know, SB2, the senator from Marin, uh, Mike McGuire, voted in favor of it, uh, like every other Democrat uh, in in the Senate did. Uh, Senator, I'm sorry, Assemblyman Mark Levine, um, also from Marin, made some noise about potentially not supporting this. um, But from what I've heard, uh, he's not sort of one of the ones at this point that they are uh, most concerned about. so on SB 35, however, uh, they um, they are both opposed, uh, uh, and you know, and have been opposed to the measure as something that they feel would impinge too much on on local control. Um, and what's interesting, though, SB 35 is a much easier bill to pass because it only takes a simple majority. Whereas anything that requires revenue, um, SB 2, and then also the bond SB 3, that's a two-thirds supermajority vote, and that's why that one, that you know, those two are so hard to so hard to pass. And what do you think kind of is the most important thing for everybody who's watching to be tracking right now? Uh, I think the votes on SB2, um, I think the bond is there. That got some Republican support in the Senate. Uh, I think SB35 is uh, is also there. Um, the key question in my mind is whether they're going to they're gonna have enough votes to get SB2 across the finish line as well. And then also, you know, I made, I've made this point, and really anyone who will, who will listen, um, but, you know, it, this was a lot of effort, and a lot of work and all these sorts of things and lots of press coverages and lots of negotiations and all of these sorts of things. But, you know, by my um, understanding of what the need is and what the state itself has, has demonstrated and has said what the need is to, in terms of the not only the number of units that you need to build to just keep pace with population growth, but also the amount of money it would take just, just to help finance new homes for the poorest residents, for the most needy residents, those who are paying more than half their income on rent. This is really a very small drop in the bucket to deal with both of those problems. And so, you know, I think advocates can, can, can point to some momentum on both of those issues um, when there hasn't been any in the past. But the reality on the ground is if people expect this, this package of legislation to reduce their rent or even keep it stable, they're going to be disappointed. Yeah, I think you've been too harsh. I read the, your article about that because we have to, you know, have some wins. And well, that's I did. Job. I mean, your I job know. Is to talk about what's a win or, or a loss. I mean, my job is trying to, to, to sort of keep expectations in line for what the public can see um, as a result of this. And again, uh, you know, like I said, 
before, I don't think that, um, you know, if this actually does happen, it did take a lot of work on behalf of advocates to sort of get there. And and people have said uh, that this is, you know, a first step in the process. Um, But, you know, I've seen here in Sacramento, and this is a common thing, where, you know, you have um, this sort of big um, uh, celebration over a package of legislation to deal with an issue, and then people come back the next year and, oh, we need to do more. And, and the response is, well, we did that already, right? Um, and, and, and I think for the members, again, members of the public who hear that big housing legislation is passed at the state level, they're going to expect that to have some appreciable difference in their life. Um, and, and except for, you know, folks who kind of win the, the uh, lottery and get, um, get, you know, get in one of these um, uh, affordable homes, right, which is great for them, obviously, and it's is wonderful for their life. Um, and, you know, potentially um, helps deal with some real problematic cases of, of, uh, of, uh, of locals potentially blocking needed housing, um, then that you're not going to see much of that difference. And so, um, yeah, but it's so much worse if we can't even do this. I mean, that's the other thing, right? I've, I've heard, so I spent the morning on the radio uh, with Tim Redmond from 48 Hills and uh, an opponent of the bill, as well as Fernando Marti of Choo Choo on KQED this morning. And, you know, all of the opponents want to have it both ways where we're ripping out local control and it's going to be so dramatic and also it's not going to accomplish anything and we're not going to build at all enough housing anyway so why even try and like you know as somebody who believes fundamentally in incremental change that you know we have to keep the ball moving forward if we fail at this one it's going to be so embarrassing that we got this close and still couldn't do it even just this amount Sure. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, look, look. I mean, if you... If we can't do this, I mean, then it's really pathetic. I, I mean, again, to, to sort of the master point that, that I brought up at the, at the beginning, which was, um, you know, everyone agrees. Everyone who's intellectually honest agrees that you need more home building in general uh, uh, to help deal with supply and demand issues that exist um, in the state, which are really out of whack. And you need more money to help finance um, developments for for um, for people who the market will never take care of. Anyone who's intellectually honest believes in those two things, and so because that's all the intellectually all the- honest is I, different than political legitimacy. Oh sure, but I again like 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 politics and advocacy. That that's 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 your stuff. I analyze it. And try, to, <laughs> try to do as close to the sort of the facts and on. And the research as I possibly can in evaluating this stuff, right? So, so, so again, like to to you know to to to, to move in both of those directions, um, I think helps address the problem, right? Whether they're the right solutions or not, you know, um, uh, I'll leave that up to, to other people to to decide. I can just talk about the implications of them. So, other things that we should talk about, um, you know, the opposition has been kind of just now for SB thirty five whittled down to you know, uh, the League of Cities, which is sort of a, a organization that's dominated by the smaller cities who are traditionally very anti-housing, and also sort of some, well, I want you to describe kind of the, the little branch of San Francisco that has visited Sacramento a few times to oppose SB 35. Yeah, I mean, there are some tenant advocates and some and some uh, low-income uh, housing advocates uh, who don't like this bill. Um, who are concerned about that it may have some impacts or effects on on uh, gentrification and displacement issues. And that's, as you said, one group that has come up to Sacramento to lobby against it. And the other one is is local governments. And you understand that opposition is, you know, um, you're, you're you are taking power away from them. Uh, and so you can understand why that would why why they would also be opposed. Yeah, I mean, this is the part where it gets weird for me, where SB 35, you know, for San Francisco, it's only going to speed up the 100% affordable housing because we're meeting our regional housing obligations for the highest market end stuff. And so this is only going to improve the amount of affordable housing we build. And yet somehow we have a few like San Francisco affordable housing advocates coming out opposed to the bill. Meanwhile, Bridge housing, Mercy housing, Mission housing, and the National uh, 
uh, sorry, the nonprofit housing California, that group. There's like all of these affordable housing people who are in, in quite big support of it because it's going to speed up the production of subsidized affordable as well. Whereas like we've got these kind of people I don't understand in San Francisco who are opposed to it. You know, I can tell you, um, so I started, I, before coming, moving up to Sacramento and working for the LA Times, I worked at a, a small journalism outfit in San Diego. And so it's interesting to watch local pol- how local politics plays out in Sacramento. Um, and like in from San Diego stuff that gets kind of pushed up here, or LA stuff that gets pushed up here, or San Francisco stuff that gets pushed over here. And I can tell you, and maybe only it's because of the issues that I cover, um, but I can tell you, you guys are the craziest of any <laughs> We have good outfits too. You also have good outfits. <laughs> but like there's the weird, crazy San Francisco politics that somehow migrates to Sacramento is weirder than the weird, crazy politics from LA or San Diego. So. <laughs> All right. Well, I I don't know. I don't wear that as a badge of honor, but I yeah, it is weird. <laughs> no, I'm constantly in this place where I'm like, I don't understand why you're opposing something that it seems would be good for your constituents it just the whole thing is bizarre i yeah i'm not going to weigh in on local san francisco all right well then let's pull to an even bigger topic which is the recent supreme court ruling um that maybe is going to make it easier to pass tax measures, but maybe it's going to be a little bit more confusing than we first thought. So can you explain that Supreme Court ruling and what we think it means? Okay, so um, I think it probably makes sense to kind of start at the beginning, uh, which is 1978, so 40 years ago. Uh, so 40 years ago, <laughs> we passed Prop 13, which I'm sure you, if you're listening to this podcast, then your listeners are familiar with that um but that yeah everybody go boo hiss boo hiss right Top 13 right <laughs> common common reaction uh among your listeners so what prop 13 did among many things is set a rule that said uh, any tax increase uh targeting a special thing so not just we're going to raise your sales tax but we're going to raise your sales tax to pay for uh transit improvements or more police or or affordable housing or whatever right um, and so what Prop 13 did is it said, yeah, that, that, that um, uh, any tax increase on a local level that you want to do um, takes a two-thirds vote to pass, right? So you need not only convince more than half the voters, but 66% of them, right, 67% of them to, to say yes. Yeah. And so, you know, 20 years later, uh, Prop 218 passed, which expanded that, those restrictions even further to all different types of things, various assessments and fees also now how to meet this two-thirds threshold at the local level. So there was an interesting case, um, and this is what the Supreme Court decided this, this, this week, uh, coming out of Upland, where um, uh, the sort of main argument was, is there a difference between a tax, a special tax proposed by a local government, so through the political process um, that, that's put on the ballot as a proposition, or... Uh, uh, a special tax that's proposed by, say, an outside, an outside interest group who collects signatures to put the uh, to put um, such a measure on the ballot. And and just to give people yeah. examples, yeah, like SB three, that bond uh, would be a two thirds. It would take a higher threshold, right? No, no. So this only applies to local measures. The way that state measures. Work, oh, okay. State me- and the state measures. State measures are not affected by this at all. So SB3 takes a two-thirds vote of the legislature to put that on the statewide ballot, but only a majority vote in the state, like on the, on the ballot among state voters, for that actually to pass. Oh, interesting. So this would be like we recently had a big fight in San Francisco about the sweetened beverage tax. Yes. Um, if it had been put on by the Board of Supervisors, then it would need a higher threshold. But maybe if it was put on by voter-initiated uh, signature drive, then it could be put, you know, passed with a lower threshold is what you're saying. So that's potential. So that might be an implication of uh, either now or down the line for what the Supreme Court that because they, they drew a clear line between um, special taxes put on by your board of supervisors or your city councils and special taxes put on by um, put on by outside interest groups who signature gathering. So they said they made a distinction or a difference between those two things, right? And what that does, if you take that logic a step further, it would say, oh, okay, if you have an outside group that puts this tax measure on for a particular purpose 
then that may only need a 50% threshold or a majority threshold instead of the two-thirds that we've been living with in this state for, uh, for close to 40 years. And so you could see the implications of that being really broad, potentially. You could have, you know, um, uh, you know a labor group uh, putting a measure on to increase sales taxes to pay for, uh, I don't know, higher, higher pay for their workers. And that's the, that's the measure that could be put on. Uh, you could see a business group saying, um, you know, higher taxes for, uh, for you know, or, or a hotel industry uh, pitching higher taxes to expand the city's convention center, right? Um, those are the kind of things that you could see outside groups doing, which should be subject to the lower threshold, which right now uh, would be, you know, is generally considered to be two thirds. Um, at the same time, you know, in, in terms of things that people may see as less nefarious, um, you could you could see, um, or less sort of riddled with, with sort of you know, interest group conflict, right? You could see, oh, okay, well, if you want to expand um, BARC or whatever, right? Um, the city could develop a plan, and then an interest group could take it, and since they're funding the campaign anyway, try to put it on with a uh, with a with a with a simple majority vote. And so, it's really thorny if this ultimately holds up, but at the same time, it could um, potentially lead to sort of having making it easier for some of these things that people want to pass to actually happen. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me California just kind of, in a lot of ways, decided it wasn't going to pay taxes anymore starting in 1978 and so we've sort of been slowly crippled by that um and i'm so this seems to me to be a very good thing like i understand that outside interest groups might be the ones initiating a lot of these increases in taxes but you know needing a two-thirds majority has meant you know in san francisco instead of actually passing tax increases half the time or more they put in set-asides which just you know sort of locks in funding from the general fund into sure. dedicated funds and, and that doesn't really i mean that's making our entire system of government not function yeah i mean there's i don't again those who are intellectually honest uh, don't really feel like the way the state's tax structure at the local or the state level makes too much sense. I mean, there are way too many knots and way too many things and way too many you know, sort of funds that are restricted and sort of workarounds that people have tried to do over to try to get around these sort of uh, very strict rules uh, in terms of what you need to do to raise taxes. Yeah, sure. Californians, I mean, I don't know if everybody loves how long our ballots are. I mean, it just sort of just keeps getting longer and longer and longer. That's my only worry with this, is that this will sort of open up a lot of pent-up energy, and suddenly our ballot will be even longer. Oh, that's definitely possible. And again, I, I think it also makes, makes it important to, to, to make clear here that this sort of um, lowering of the threshold is hardly something that the legal community here in the state uh, is unanimous on uh, in terms of believing that the Supreme Court decision uh, said that. I think most certainly there is going to be, if someone tries to do this, there's going to be more litigation um, challenging that. And so it's not a slam dunk yet that this is what this, this is what this uh, you know, legal opinion said, or legal decision rather said. Huh. So this is so. I mean, there was a lot of premature celebrating about this. So you know, what do you? So you think that this is going to take another lawsuit or two in order to figure out what it actually means? What do you think I is think, going to come next? I think the Supreme Court opened the door for this logic, and and it's interesting if you read the dissent. Um, the dissenting judge said, you know, you guys tried to draw this line between. Um, certain portions of the Constitution here that actually have the exact same language in them. And so if you think that this opinion is preserving this two-thirds threshold, your logic doesn't hold, right? And so, so I, think that, um, I think that we're going to need to see more litigation before it's entirely clear that, that, what, um, you know, that, that, that this threshold was really affected by, the, uh, by sort of this opening the Supreme Court seemed to give it. So my biggest question is how soon until we start getting to tax property again? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, this would apply to if, again, assuming that this sort of kind of grand or wide-ranging reading of this decision uh, is accurate or correct or ultimately what happens, partial taxes would be affected. Um, so you could, you know, raise a parcel tax uh, to pay for a particular thing with a lower threshold. Um, if this ruling uh, in its most expansive view were to hold. 
Huh. Yeah, because I, I don't love parcel taxes because, you know, they're not differentiated by how large a parcel you have, you know? So, it, I mean, it really yeah. is not, it's, it is fair to call them, they're not truly regressive because the lowest income people are renting and in subsidized housing, but they are yeah. a little bit more regressive than just a traditional property tax. Yeah, and again, like, like you know, don't think that you're not going to see um, any political you know, backlash or, or, or fight to this too. I mean, we've already seen, um, oh, the Howard Jarvis society came out strong, <laughs> but, yeah, but, but remember, I mean, you know, uh, uh, and again, I, I'm not sure how many members of the Howard Jarvis society listen to your, to your podcast. I'm um, sure they're all hate listening. Yeah. Right. No, but they're very, they're very prominent, um, force, um, in California, uh, you, you know, still in terms of the mantle of the, the actually kind of anti-tax movement, they're one of the most prominent folks there. And, and, and they have the year of many, Many many lawmakers. In fact, you've already have uh, assembly uh, GOP members here uh, say, announcing this week that they're going to um, introduce a constitutional amendment that would for sure close this uh, loophole or close this door that the court might have opened. And so, um, and I wouldn't necessarily think that that's um, a purely partisan a purely partisan issue. You know, you have um, a lot of Democrats who are very very supportive of the ideas of Proposition Thirteen and the protections that they say. It affords to, to homeowners, and so this is not just Republicans like Prop Thirteen. Um, there are a lot of folks here in in the legislature, um, and and I would venture to say a goodly number of Democrats in the state who are very, very, very supportive of what that offers as well. Yeah, no, I mean anybody who's made a lot of money off of their house going from being worth you know fifty k to being worth two million dollars all of a sudden over the course of twenty years, you know, is going to be in support of this. I, it is a perfect sort of you know, all the stereotypes about limousine liberals and, you know, come into sharp relief around this issue. I mean, there are a lot, there's a lot of self-interest um, involved in, and in self-interest incentives involved in, in, in folks, no matter their political persuasion, um, having the ability to, to, to maintain this, this system. Absolutely. So will they will the law be set by somebody just going in and trying to put on like a new you know tobacco tax or something, or is this going to be something that they'll have to do a, another quick ruling about before the next election? Well, you know, Supreme Courts don't act on political timelines typically, right? And so, like, no, everybody like, should do things on political timelines. Right. <laughs> right. I don't know. I mean, we'll see. I, I think you're going to need to see another challenge. I wouldn't be shocked to see a challenge. Um, but anyone who another challenge, and maybe maybe that would be well. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know when the next election would be um, where you could be sure that that you're on firm footing here with with this. I mean, uh, you know, I would highly anyone who tries to run this in 2018 at a local level for a particular issue um, is really um, taking their all the money they're going to throw into that campaign um, up in the air. They're really putting it up in the air because. You don't know for sure that this is actually going to hold. And so, yeah, if you've got a, a lot of money you want to burn potentially and <laughs> really believe in, in, this, in this policy, then, you know, and then you have to like, then you have to hope that you don't get two thirds, right? Because if you get two thirds, the issue is moot. And so you have to be willing to throw a ton of money in a campaign, you know, win or, or get more than 50%, but less than two thirds, then sue over it and then wait a year or two to see if you get, you know, to see if you actually, actually won or not. This seems like, like a Sam Altman project. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know who would be willing to do this or wait. Yeah, you know? yeah. We this is a perfect Sam Altman project. All right, who's going to email him? This is good. <laughs> yeah. um, all right, great. Is there anything else you think it's important for us to understand about this kind of ruling? I mean, it does feel like everybody's scrambling, but maybe nobody knows what to do with themselves. You know, yeah. I think it's. I think people are scrambling. Um, and and they're scrambling because they don't know what to do with them. Right, exactly your point, right? So so um, <laughs> no, I mean I think I think I think um, basically for people who who, have, who think the world has changed, uh, it hasn't yet. Um, it's sort of maybe this is a good way to put it. Like like they've opened the door to the world changing, and you can look through it, but no one's walked through that door yet. That's my that's my metaphor of the day for explaining it. No, that's a good one. I like it. 
Um, all right, great. So now let's pull out to sort of like housing and Sacramento. Assuming SB 35 doesn't solve all our problems, which I think we're pretty well aware of, but it's a good step in the right direction. Um, what do you think sort of the next thing? I mean, we're not going to let anybody celebrate too much. Um, and I think the cost of living will mean that any legislator that does, you know, too much spiking of the football will be quickly reined in. What do you think the next thing um, that legislators should be taking on at the state level to tackle the cost of living should be? Rather than like setting priorities, I think it's better for me um, to talk about some of the issues that when I've talked to um, when I've talked to lawmakers and experts uh, in this issue that present sort of the real deeper fundamental problems. Um, and so we can go back to we can go back to kind of uh, kind of top fourteen um, uh, in many ways about this. But one sort of key thing, you know, I spent. Um, I spent some time in in Brisbane um, to write a story about what was going on there, uh, and uh, so I, I imagine you guys have talked about the Brisbane situation in your podcast. Previously. Yeah, yeah. So, is it worth me summarizing? Um, I'm sure, yeah, because you know, not everybody listens to every episode. Right, so. right. So, Brisbane, small city, um, on the right, literally right on the border with San Francisco. Um, there's a developer who wants to. Uh, build about 4,400 units um, on a former landfill and rail yard property that, again, literally abuts the city of San Francisco, right on a Caltrain line. Um, and so it's, you know, in a lot of ways, um, the kind of project that 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 planners kind of dream for in terms of uh, dealing with climate change issues and housing issues and those those sorts of things. But Brisbane is so small that this project would um, would triple the size, uh, triple its size, and so you run into a lot of concerns among that community that about the the project and the size of it and all those sorts of things. So um, that's sort of one concern. But another key concern is about um, the money that the city would make off of this project versus potentially other alternatives. And so the city hired a consultant that said, you know, what happens if we approve 4,400 housing units like the developer wants with some associated commercial and hotel development versus a project that would have zero amount of housing while also uh, while also um, having more uh, hotel and commercial development than has been initially proposed. And so when um, when they did that analysis, they found that they would make a million dollars a year in tax revenue uh, from the project that the developer was proposing, but they would make nine million a year with with zero housing and a lot more hotel and commercial. And remember, this is a very small city. Their general fund budget is sixteen million dollars, right? So an eight million dollar difference is a huge deal for a city of that size in terms of the revenue that they that they would be able to take in. And so um, that's a problem for anyone who wants more housing in the state. When cities are incentivized, there's always going to be neighborhood concerns um, in any in any city about something that's going to come in and change uh, change their community. Whether there's issues are valid or not is you know case by case basis, et cetera, et cetera. Right? But this this money issue, this financial incentive issue, is really problematic for people who want to have more housing because you can't even buy off people, right? You can't even say it's in your interest, cities, to do this. It actually hurts them. To, to approve housing financially. And so um, if that sort of underlying financial underpinning for the how for how cities get financed isn't addressed in some way, then you're going to see you know, more resistance and more reluctance. And again, understandably so um, to having housing development. So, uh, you know, I don't know if there's a particular bill that would be able to address that or whether that's something that would have to come through a constitutional amendment or whatever. But that's a really fundamental problem that makes uh, home building in California extremely difficult. Yeah, I mean, we see that all over. I mean, Cupertino is debating. I mean, the Brisbane project is a good example of really making it very stark. Exactly. But that that same incentive structure is happening over and over and over again, especially in the South Bay. Yeah. Um, and. You know, one of the solutions we've sort of been banding about uh, is some kind of sh- revenue sharing um, that basically removes all of the incentive because, you know, the entire Bay Area, it would go into like a Bay Area fund if you built hotel, commercial, 
um, rather than it being, you know, collected and spent locally. Right. Um, but of course, you know, nobody wants to give up their golden goose. So, you know, you have to get a lot of people agreeing that we're sort of mutually all going to do things differently. Uh, you know, I don't know. You know, it's our, my job to say, okay, we don't, I don't care whether people have an appetite for it. We're going to create an appetite for it. And we're going to do big changes. But that would be a big nut to crack. Yeah, and there was an effort to do this uh, roughly a decade ago, uh, I believe. And I don't, might have might not, might not have my facts entirely right, but I do know there was a, a, dec- a effort to do this about a decade ago to sort of have a more regional shares tax, sales tax sharing just for um, new projects. So mm-hmm. whatever the sales tax allocations were previously, uh, they would be kept. But for any new sort of development, that would be shared region, region-wide. And I believe that was a bill from Daryl Steinberg, who is now the mayor of Sacramento and was uh, an assembly member and eventually became the leader of the state Senate. And that bill got crushed. Uh, not only got crushed, uh, there was a ballot measure that was ran later that that, would, that made it even harder to do something like that. And so there's a lot of resistance um, to changing status quo, particularly when money's involved, because people know how the rules of the game are played, right? And when you change them to those rules of the game and those long-time sort of ways that cities have shaped themselves to respond to the rules of the game, um, that's, you know, that's there's a hard, there's a really hard changes to make. Yeah, I mean, I'm just wondering if there is a, a growing appetite. I mean, something that I see everywhere is this, rebellion of you know new people and all of these things against entrenched interests and this is something that i'm hoping is like a coming wave in california and you know maybe even across the country as as people sort of see how bad can it get when you have government that is you know oligopoly basically and where you have a few people getting all the benefits can we have this sort of wave of anti-entrenched interests that can kind of you know repeal prop 13 that can get all the housing we need built and that can push back against all of these extractive ways of doing taxes that you know only have the benefits in already wealthy places uh uh, I'm just gonna knock on wood. Right. <laughs> yeah, this, this, you know that the, you know that stuff that stuff coming from you. I mean, I, right. I think I think you look at the stats of who votes, right? And 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 uh, you know you know homeowners vote more than, than non-homeowners, right? I mean that's a key thing. And you know white folks vote more than non-white folks. And and you know uh, and people generally tend to vote in their self-interest, right? Um, and so uh, you know I I, I, I mean. As demographics in the state change and as certain problems become clear that they affect certain demographic groups more than others, um, I don't know how much those fundamental facts uh, of who votes and who doesn't um, kind of plays into what the ultimate results are and how long it takes for uh, you know enough people who are in, who are in self-interest getting screwed by policy extra policy Y to come out and say we want to end those policies. Um, and, and, you know, um, and so... I think this is all. I think some of this more fundamental stuff is is kind of this very long term um, project. And again, like you know, right now we're building. I don't know, roughly around one hundred thousand units in in the state um, by the state by the state's um, own estimates. You need to build one hundred eighty thousand a year just to keep pace with population growth, right? And but but if we just did if we you know upped our production by eighty thousand units, which would be a tremendous undertaking, right, in a year. Um, Again, no one's going to see like an appreciable difference in you know in their rent right away, right? Um, it has to. No, it'll just suck a little less. Right, but that has to. That that amount of building um, at a level that is is sort of historically, you know, rare over the last 20, 30 years in California. That's make- yeah, but it's not historically rare over the past hundred years or two hundred years. Yeah, I mean that's the thing that I, everyone's got short term memory. Yeah, but thirty years is thirty years is you know I, I mean it's not a not a not a not a super small period of time. Um, but it's yeah, but I, I guess I you know in terms of in terms of talking about time horizons for when some of these problems are going to get appreciably better, uh, even if all the machinery is moving in the right direction for that for that to happen, uh, it it still might be a very long time. You know, um, to, to kind of turn the, you know, even, I guess my point is, even once you turn the... Well, you and I will still be alive. What's that? I said, you and I will still be alive. Oh, man. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. 
But then, you know, but then we're going to become weird and old and have our own weird and old issues that we're going to vote in our Yeah. So that's, you know, that's the way things work, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just have to hope that we can turn the ship around because, you know, what's the other option, right? I mean, if we don't start building that extra 80,000, you know, extra 100,000, extra 180,000, then we're just going to continue to deteriorate. I mean, yeah, I mean, by the metrics laid out by the state or what you need, then unless you build what you need, which we're far from doing, the problem is going to get worse. And every year that and every year that you're short, uh, you need that much more the following year to make up for the previous year's shortfall. So, yeah, it gets worse. It gets worse and worse and worse. Um, and, and even if you stop the bleeding, you had a lot of a lot of bleeding that already happened between <laughs> this metaphor, right? To have yeah. a year to take care of all the all the bleeding you'd done previously. So a lot of work. Yeah. A lot of work. No, and it's interesting, you know, I talk to people who are like, you know, they can't imagine the level of building that we're talking about. You know, it's like outside of their realm of comprehension. And I'm sort of, you know, always kind of surprised by that. I'm like, you know, we have done big things in the past. This one time we went to the moon, like human beings take on large undertakings. We are capable of digging our way out of this hole. But often the times the, you know, sort of ultimate NIMBY answer to this is, well, I can't imagine building on the scale that you're talking about. And so it would be better if we just did nothing and just continue to bleed. And I'm like, this, this is insane. It's interesting. It's interesting. That's that's in transition to something else I wanted to bring up, which was, um, which was, uh, you know, it's interesting to look at this in the context of of, uh, of the state's climate change goals, right? Uh, because that's something mm-hmm. that's pretty universally supported uh, up here uh, in Sacramento um, among you know among Democrats, right? Um, and there's been a ton of high-profile major legislation in recent years that have aimed at addressing this issue uh, and setting you know stricter and stricter goals for for reducing carbon emissions, and so. You know, everyone believes that you can't meet those goals without fundamental changes to where California, home building in California occurs, has to occur, um, you know, in existing urban areas, existing cities, and it has to be taller, right? And it has to occur near transit and job centers because in order to reduce emissions efficiently, you have to get people out of cars, no matter how many electric cars you're going to put on the road. You still need to get people out of cars, and the only way to do that is to build housing where they were near where they work and shop, right? Um, and so, there's a tremendous amount of uh, momentum and and, and pressure uh, from the state to meet climate change goals. And I think the reality of without fundamental sort of land use changes, those goals aren't going to be met. I mean, that's going to happen. People are going to begin to realize it, and I can write about it, and people can talk about it. Um, but that's the reality. It's going to hit people in the face. You know, as soon as, you know, when people realize the 2030 goals that we have aren't going to be met unless unless these things happen. And when that happens, I think we'll really see sort of what kind of takes precedence. I mean, you know, this this historic um, kind of push for um, having, you know, cities in, in a lot of ways potentially see themselves as, as, as island when it, when it relates to development and having the sort of state come down and say, well, we're not. We, we we can't do this really important thing that we think we need to do, um, and th- those both we can't have both those things. Um, at least the numbers say we can't, right? And so I'm just going to be fascinated to watch and hopefully continue to report about, <laughs> you know, what happens <laughs> when those two goals that we have or two policies we have conflict. And it's very interesting on you know on the hyper local level, like the relationship that the Sierra Club has to these issues. I mean, they are this perfect example. I mean, there's a reason we talk about them all the time because they are emblematic of people whose stated goals are not in alliance with what they seem to be doing. If they really are wanting to be pro uh, environment and curb greenhouse gas emissions, then the way that their local chapters operate is completely insane and counter to those goals. So I'm not going to speak about San Francisco's um, Sierra Club because I don't I don't know much about them. I haven't re- re- reported much about them. I only kind of mm-hmm. know what I what I've read in various sort of various stories. So I'm not going to I'm not going to speak to kind of how they approach this issue. I can say it was interesting to read. Um, I believe it was this month in the National Magazine that Sierra Club puts out, sort of touting 
the IMBI movement as a way to address climate change issues. And so uh, if there is some um, discrepancy between what local chapters and the, and the national uh, sort of club apparently believes, if they're going to write about it in a positive way, or housing development, um, sort of high-density housing development in a positive way in a national magazine, that's sort of interesting kind of cleavage within the environmental movement. And, and you have seen... You know, you know, there is that tension, I think, uh, that you do see play out sometimes in Sacramento. There, you know, the, the, the woman, the, the former state senator and a former assemblywoman who wrote um, both of the, the climate change uh, goal uh, piece of legislation that we've had, uh, uh, AB 32, which was the original one setting climate change goals for 2020, and then the one that passed last, last year, SB 32, um, setting the climate change goals for 2030, uh, this is Senator Fran Pavley, or former Senator Fran Pavley, she termed out last year uh, from the L.A. area. Uh, she voted against, for instance, last year, um, bills that would have made it easier to, or that ultimately passed, would have made, made it easier to build uh, granny flats or accessory dwelling, dwelling units um, across the state. <laughs> and and her, her reasoning for this is that, you know, um, we should defer to cities to how their communities should look. Um, and, you know, she's... I mean, an environment as the most, uh, I mean, well, one of the most well-known legislative environmentalists in, in the state in terms of, you know, helping to facilitate very extremely consequential um, legislation in that area. And so it, it's interesting because I, you know, I talked to her for a story I did last year, uh, rather earlier this year, about the sort of land use and climate change issue. And, and you know, she has no problem, I asked her, I said, she has no problem um, um having very strong rules um, uh, against, say, the auto industry, for instance, um, and mandating what, what they do. But for local governments, uh, that you know, mandating those rules uh, on them for her was a bridge too far. Uh, and so with things like parking requirements thing, and things like that, right? And so, you know, she, um, and then so she said to me, she said the hardest part of this, from her perspective, is going to get the, 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 the land use um, uh, changes that we need to meet the climate change goals, especially if if it's too much for the state to ask those local communities to change how they do business. Yeah, it's interesting. Nobody wants local control of like smog emissions or, you know, any of these other climate related things, but they all want local control of land use. And it's like, well, you know, we need to start thinking about land use as exactly the same kind of category of issues as, you know, what kinds of poisons are we going to be pumping into our air and all the other things that do such damage to our environment. I think that's something that policymakers are going to continue to have to kind of wrestle with, for sure. Um, so is there anything else that you want to make sure is on our agenda and that we're paying attention to um, in the next few months? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, It'll be interesting. Is there some sort of minor thing, other things that might be going on? Um, you know, there's, you know, this, speaking again of climate change, there's uh, cap and trade money, which is the program that we generally finance, uh, sort of uh, companies pay to pollute, right? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that program has a decently large set aside for, for uh, not necessarily for low income housing, uh, it's for housing that helps with these sort of land use goals, right? Um, and so, but in, pra- in practice, it's generally speaking, it's, it's it's dedicated for um, low-income housing. So there's going to be another fight over where that money's going to go. Um, and so there could be a decent allocation uh, for, for uh, housing through that, process, uh, through that process as well. And that's definitely something to watch as that moves forward. It may move forward by the end of this, this legislative year in mid-September, or it could, could get punted to next year. Um, but that is something that, that is, will be interesting to, to watch from a money perspective. I think also how housing gets talked about um, both uh, next year, assuming they do pass a big package of legislation this year, given that, um, like I said earlier, uh, once they kind of tend to do something big or something that's perceived as big, a lot of times the wind gets, of the sales get taken out of it. And so we'll interesting to see whether that actually happens uh, with respect to housing next year. And the last thing is the extent to which this is talked about and the ways in which the narratives of which this is discussed in the governor's race. Um, next year. Uh, most definitely people will talk about housing, um, but for a long time in Sacramento, uh, you know, particularly since redevelopment was eliminated about six years ago, the conversation is primarily focused on how do we get more money for to build low-income housing development, and not so much on the, on the regulatory side, or at least not in a comprehensive way. And I think the last, the last year or so, we've seen much more discussion of, uh, of, uh, on, 
the regulatory side. And so I'm curious um, how sort of the main candidates for governor talk about uh, housing, whether they emphasize money for low-income developments, whether they emphasize regulatory reform to help kind of have home building happen um, sort of more broadly in general, and what their plans for that turn out to be. Uh, because, you know, again, as we spent this whole hour talking about this stuff, this is, this is a problem that needs both of those parts, uh, but some folks emphasize one over the other, right? Um, mm-hmm. And where each of the candidates kind of land on that, I think will be really interesting to kind of see the narrative and the kind of way that we'll be talking about this issue here in Sacramento at the state level for potentially the next eight years. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, the the terminology that people use of talking about making housing affordable versus capital A affordable housing and how people kind of manipulate those terms to make it seem like affordable, subsidized affordable housing is somehow in conflict with building a lot more market rate housing as opposed to them being two totally necessary systems. Yeah, and I think there is some... There is some some natural tension a little bit. I mean, it is funny because as I've you know as I've um, been looking at this, um, there are a number of inter- interest groups with respect to the housing issue that are often at cross purposes. Um, you know, the labor, uh, realtors, developers, uh, local governments, um, environmentalists, right? All of those groups actually benefit from having more housing. Because, you know, more homes getting built is good for labor because there means more work for construction workers. Obviously good for developers to get more profits. Good for realtors because they have more houses to sell. Good for affordable housing developers, you know, because there's more, you know, work for them. Good for local government because they get more tax revenue, right? So everyone benefits from more building, but the sort of, they, they all fight each other. Um, over what sort of, as you were just saying, over like what emphasis to put on different things, right? Um, and there are some conflicts where, you know, you'll have some affordable affordable uh, or, uh, you know, developer groups say, listen, this process should be streamlined only for us because unlike, you know, the super slick back haired rich developer types, you know, <laughs> we don't have the ability to go out and spend a zillion dollars on land to make that month, to make that back. Um, off of, you know, a, a hundred foot skyscraper, right? We have to kind of um, scratch and claw for the properties and the land that we can get and build low income housing on. So you, under, you understand from that kind of kind of more micro perspective why some of these conflicts sort of exist over, you know, streamlining for us and not for them or for them and not for us and all these sorts of things, right? But again, it, it is interesting to me that on the macro level, everyone wins for more, for all the interest group wins. From having more housing development, you know, happen. Yeah, it's just that everyone keeps shooting themselves in the foot over and over again. So, <laughs> I guess that's why they needed us, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really fun. A pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, I just want you to come to San Francisco and then yell at all the not intellectually honest people. That's all I need you to do is just be like, you, sir, are not intellectually honest.